All right, today is the final message in our Overcome series. You guys excited for it? You better be excited. Today is a really good message. No, I really am excited about this. You know, I plan a lot in advance, and I was actually planning a series for this October and November that's different than this Joseph series. But one day I was talking with Melissa, and she was like, hey, you should cover Joseph. Have you ever thought about preaching on Joseph? And I said, I don't know. And then we kind of just started talking. I was just kind of entertaining her. Yeah, we can talk about it. Yeah, this would be week one. This would be week two. And then as I kind of went through it and talked with it, we got to week seven, the seventh message in it, which is what we're going to be doing today. And I was like, I'm doing that series on Joseph. This was the message I'm doing the whole series for. I hope that you've learned and grown through this series, but today is what it's all about. This is what it's all looking forward to. This is really the, the climax, not only of the Joseph story, but I think of all of the book of Genesis. If you read that book from start to finish, this is the last chapter. This kind of encapsulates all of it because it talks about evil. In this series, we've seen that we can't choose our circumstances. Things happen to us that are completely beyond our control. And we want to be in control. We try to control everything we can, but then things happen. You know, there's that illness, there's the job loss, there's suffering, there's evil that happens, and we say, why the heck is it happening? And how we respond to that is what we can choose. How we respond to the evil in the world, in our lives, that's what we can choose and what we have power over, and that's what we need to to overcome. So that's what we're going to learn from Joseph, because I've looked around, and I know this is pretty painting in some broad brushes, pretty generalized, but really there are just three ways that people in our world respond to evil. There are three ways, and the first one is to deny that it exists. Really, this is what people do. They kind of deny that it exists. Say, oh, no, the world's good. There's good things that happen, and oh, there's just a few bad apples, but everything is generally good. Everybody's good, right? And there's even some religions, some Eastern religions, that say that suffering isn't real. They say it's just an illusion. And what we need to do is learn how to to escape into a higher plane to escape the suffering we feel in these bodies. And and people do it in different ways, not just in Eastern religions. Some people try to mask it, and they just get themselves so focused on something that they get distracted from the evil in the world, right? And, And these people, whether it's through a substance or through uh, you know, an addiction, or through like video games, or even creating fantasy lives, not just online, but in real life. They try to escape the world because oh, it doesn't exist. We just pretend that evil and suffering isn't real. Let's create like this secondary reality for our lives. But here's the thing. If you just try to deny that evil exists, at some point you will feel it. It will happen to you or to your family or someone close to you. Something awful will happen. Well, how do you deal with that? How do you go through it? Because you can't deny it forever. At some point, it will hit you. Well, so that fails. So then the second thing that people try to do is to say that any evil that happens is deserved. It's deserved. Entire religions, entire philosophies are built on this, that anything bad that happens to a person is because of bad things they did. If good things happen, it's because you're a good person. And this is how people kind of say it. If, if good things happen, it's good. This is the whole idea of karma, right? Karma, there's this force out there. If good things happen, eventually good things will return to you. If you do bad, eventually bad things will happen to you. But then you look at like an infant, a baby. What did they do? And that's when people have invented entire philosophies of reincarnation. Because it had to have been a past life for you to deserve it in this life. And then you're like, what? I mean, you have to really, you know, make this brand new worldview with no evidence in order to make that a reality, right? And it's not. We know that that there is suffering, and sometimes bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. 
And any of those explanations don't make sense. It doesn't match with the reality that we observe in the world. So then the third thing that most of our modern world has tried to do is not to deny it, not to say that, hey, it's just bad things happening to bad people, but what they do is just say it's all 100% chance. There's no rhyme or reason to evil. When evil happens, it's just random. just happened to be that way. That's just the way the dice... The die landed. And, and, and they do this because if we were created 13.7 billion years ago and there was these atoms that were moving around and boom, they, there's this big bang, right? And then all of a sudden, the, the, all the cosmos were created and then eventually life were created in all these billions of years. It's also just chance, right? There's no rhyme or reason. There's no reality. But here's the thing. If that's the way you view the world, that it's all chance, that it's all determined by atoms rolling around in the world, that leads to despair. It really does. If you think about that long enough... Man, how tragic is that? Because when the bad things happen to you, what can you do about it? It's just bound to happen. It's random. It's just chance. So when we look at all three of these worldviews of ways to interact with evil and respond to evil, all three of them fail at different points. If we deny it, well, it's going to hit us at some point. If we just try to explain it on the, you know, karma, okay, well, that doesn't make sense of everything. And then when we just try to say it's all random chance, that's just despair and hopeless. There's got to be some meaning to it. And that's when we come to the fourth way, the Christian explanation of evil. Because I think that's one of the reasons why I believe Christianity is true, just one of them. But because it makes the best sense and explanation for evil. It really does. If you want to understand how evil works and, and, and what's our response to it, I think we need something like Christianity to explain it better. We need it. And that's what Joseph understood through his life. We don't know at what point he figured it out, but at some point in his journey, he realized it. And he's going to teach us and show us by his example how we should respond to evil because evil is going to have to happen in our lives. It's going to come. And we need to learn how to respond and in turn overcome. So I want to teach us this way to to view evil the, the way that Joseph teaches us in our seventh part in this series. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15 today. And as you guys are getting your Bible or, or following along on your smartphone, I'm just going to kind of give you a recap for those of you who weren't here or, or it's your first time or, or you missed a couple messages. So this Joseph tracks the life of one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob was also called by God Israel from which we get the nation Israel, right? He was one of the patriarchs, the forefathers of the Jewish and in turn the Christian faith. Even Muslims look back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So Jacob's 11th son, he showed favor to that 11th son. And because he did that, all these other 11 brothers hated Joseph so much that they were jealous of him and ended up um, throwing him into a pit and, and selling him into slavery, right? They, they hated him. And all this bad stuff happened to him. He had all this baggage. So in our first message in this series... We learned that we need to overcome your past or be overcome by it. Joseph had all these awful things happen to him. Yeah, he was probably foolish, did some dumb things, but man, the bad things that happened to him were way worse than anything he did, and yet still happened. So we needed to learn to overcome our past, and I hope this series has helped you do some of those things. But in the next week, we we saw that um, before God takes you to the top, he puts you in the pit. That's what happened to happen to Joseph. He got thrown literally into a pit by his brothers before being sold into slavery, and then for 13 years... He had a very long trial because after he got sold into slavery, he got brought down to Egypt where he lived in the house of a a man named Potiphar and Potter's first wife had the hots for Joseph. And when he said, no, 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 that's my master's wife. I'm not sleeping with you. 
she accused him of sexual assault, and then he got thrown in prison, even though he had done nothing wrong. So he got thrown in prison, and we saw then, in that week, that character is costly. If you do what's right, sometimes it's going to hurt you. You're like, what? Yeah. It's true. This is one of the pits we faced. Even doing what's right, bad things happen to us. But Joseph did develop this character, and he developed integrity even more so than he had. And he was a good, uh, a good prisoner. He was a great prisoner, and the prison uh, loved him, and he became friends with the cupbearer, one of Pharaoh's officials. And that cupbearer eventually got out of prison and forgot about Joseph. He said, hey, I'll help you out, but forgot about Joseph. And we learned from Joseph that week how to wait. Because for years and years, he was just waiting for something good to happen to him. And we learned to work diligently, assist others, invite God's help, and try to get out. It's a good acronym. I had two people this week tell me that they remembered that and shared it with somebody else or needed it for themselves. I was like, that's great. I'm glad because Joseph teaches us how to wait. And yet still, for two more years, he was forgotten about, even after he was waiting right. But then finally, the cupbearer remembers him, brings him out, brings him before Pharaoh, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And Pharaoh elevates him to second in command over all of Egypt. And we learn to honor God, and he will honor you. It might take a long time, but God will never forget He will reward us. He will honor us when we honor him. So we saw that finally Joseph was out. And then last week, man, we had a dynamite message, didn't we? Sawyer Trap filled in and he preached and he did great. Yeah, give Sawyer a round of applause. Yeah. Sawyer did great because even though Joseph had been elevated out of prison, finally good things were happening in his life. He was second in command in Egypt. Everybody listened to him and did what he said. And then his brothers came to Egypt. And isn't that what happens in our own lives? Like, we're finally past all the hard stuff. Things are going well, and then we run into those people. Oh, maybe it's the family member, the person who hurts you, and you see them, and all of a sudden, you were feeling good, and you just feel awful again. You're hurt and sadness, anger. You don't, I mean, you're just all over the way, place emotionally. And that's when we learn that forgiveness is the best revenge. We learn that from, from uh, sorry, that's a great big idea. I love it. Forgiveness is the best revenge. And, and even though Joseph could have made his brothers slaves for life. He could have punished them for all the things they did to him. He didn't. He forgave them. And that's where we left off last week. And what Joseph ended up doing was inviting his brothers, inviting his father, all of their family members to come down from Canaan, the promised land, into Egypt because there was a famine there and there would be food for them in Egypt. And Joseph got the approval of Pharaoh and they got land that they could graze their sheep on. Sixty-six members of the family came down and then Joseph and his wife and two sons made 70 for this gigantic family. They were all provided for. Things were really good. Even as the famine continued to go on, they were provided for. Joseph got more and more power as people came to him for help. And then Jacob, Joseph's father, became ill. He was older and he was getting sick. So he called all of his sons all 12 of them to come before him. And he gave Joseph a double portion, one for each of his sons uh, of the inheritance. But he blessed every single one of these sons. And in case you didn't know that, these 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Interesting, right? They, They became the 12 tribes of Israel that still exist to this day. And with Judah, with Judah, who was the one who sold Joseph into slavery, right? He was the capitalist of the group. He sold him into slavery and he... He was the one that Jacob blessed and said, you're a lion cub and the scepter will not depart from Judah. What? So meaning that there was some kind of royal lineage in Judah, even though they were in Egypt in a foreign land. 
There was some royalty that was going to come. So keep that in mind. We'll get back to it later in the message, okay? But all these 12 tribes are, are getting blessed, and then Jacob is on his deathbed, and he, said, he makes his sons promise him that they will take his body, his bones, his remains, and move them back into the promised land, because that's where his grandfather Abraham, his wife Sarah, and his father Isaac, and Re- his wife Rebekah, that's where they were buried, in a cave. And he said, I want to go back to that tomb with my family, with my forefathers. So when he dies, that's what they do. Joseph and all his brothers get a procession together. They get permission from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh sends all his officials. And they mourn for 70 days. They embalm him just like they did in ancient Israel. And they take this body up on this huge procession to the promised land, Canaan. And they bury him there. And for there for seven days they mourn over Jacob, their father, who's dead. But as they're coming back then to Egypt to live, this is where we're going to pick up our story, because now Joseph's brothers are thinking, uh-oh, with dad dead, is Joseph still going to be nice to us? Maybe he was just protecting us because he wanted to see his father. We kept him from, now he, it's his time. He can get us back. He can hurt us. He could just cut us off from food and we'd be dead. Joseph has all the power here, and they think again, "Uh uh-oh, what if he goes back on that forgiveness that he so generously gave us? And that's where we pick up the story in verse 15 of Genesis 50. In verse 15 we read, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? Uh Uh-oh, now it's time for us. We're going to get this payback. We're going to get the revenge that Joseph... Deserves to give us. So they concoct this plan. Verse 16 we read. So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. Okay, it's possible that he said this. Probably not. They're writing up a last will and testament from their father to manipulate their brother. Verse 17, this is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the songs and the sins and the wrongs they have committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. They invoke their dead father. They invoke God. They create this entire last will and testament. I mean, how manipulative could you be? They're trying to deceive their brother into protecting them. Dad said you need to forgive us. People do crazy things when they're in grief. I know that. I've been to a lot of funerals. People do crazy things, but man, this is pretty manipulative, right? It's pretty awful. And that's why it says Joseph's response. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. I'm sure he was in grief too. I'm sure he was sad. But I think he wept because his brothers had just gone right back into their sinful ways. He had seen him make so much improvement. I mean, even Judah, the one who sold him into slavery, was standing up in place of Benjamin so he didn't have to go into slavery. Wow, they'd made such good progress. They were good. They weren't uh, awful to their brother like they could have been. He forgave them. But then they go backwards. Doesn't that happen sometimes? And they're in there kind of giving like a half-hearted apology. Now please forgive the sins of the servants. Like, come on, guys. He sees them and he weeps because he thinks, man, they don't get it. They don't get it. They don't understand all this evil that's happened, even to me. They don't understand how we are supposed to respond to evil as Christians, as believers. They don't understand it. So Joseph is going to go on to explain to them, and from him we're going to learn three different ways that we need to respond to evil. 
Joseph gives us his example and then his words to his brothers. And we can learn that. So I want you guys to be taking notes on this. Because the first thing that, that Joseph says, when we pull up um, verse 18, it says, that his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. So they're bowing before him, just like the dream that Joseph had had, right, when he was just a boy. They're bowing down before him. We're your slaves, doing whatever they can to manipulate Joseph. In verse 19, it says, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I God? You know the first rule of theology? God is God and you are not. That's what Joseph is saying here. I'm not God. I don't need to get revenge. I don't need to get retribution. I don't need to get justice for all the hardship I've dealt with. God can handle that. He knows all things. If I try to get justice, I'll probably hurt you more in the process. I'll make even more evil come out of this. I'm just going to let God get revenge. I'll let him sort it all out. And that's what we need to learn to do because God is in control. And and Joseph is saying, hey, this is what we need to do. So our first point is that we need to let God be God. Let God be God. It's not your place. You don't need to get revenge. You don't need to get justice. Let God handle that. He can take care of it. Because even if we do it, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be justice. We'll probably hurt them more than we were ourselves hurt. But, you know, when we do make it to the end, I think that we're going to go up to God and talk with him about it, and, and he's going to explain it, and we're going to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You did handle that the way it should have been handled. I would have never thought of that. God can do that because God is sovereign. He is in control. He knows the past, present, and future. He knows how people's lives are operated. He knows how to get to their heart. He knows all that he's doing. We can let God be God. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, once said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. I can lay back. I can let God be God. He can handle this. I don't need to. So that's the first thing we learn from Joseph. Let God be God. But then the second thing that Joseph says is we need to look at the bigger picture. Let God be God and look at the bigger picture. Listen to what Joseph says in verse 20. He says, you intended to harm me. Let's not sugarcoat it. Evil is real. You intended evil. That word harm in the Hebrew literally is evil. You intended evil towards me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Joseph says, I see now the bigger picture. I was brought here. I had to suffer all these years so I'd get in the place where I could save not only Egypt, but also you and all of the known world. That I could make a way for our family lineage to continue on for generations to come. I've saved many lives. God intended it for good. Look at the bigger picture here. Even this evil that I've gone through, God intended it for good. So we need to look at the bigger picture. This is so important. We need to realize that when we fail that test, and it drives us to study more so that we end up passing the course, it was worth it. That when we get out of that bad relationship, it's awful, and we end up in a better situation, that breakup was worth it. When we go under the knife and the scalpel, and, and it cuts us and it hurts but it removes the tumor, it was worth it. We need to look at the bigger picture. Um, Melissa and I have been watching The Great British Bake Off. Um, And and if you guys watch that or any cooking shows, you realize that they give these people like hours to make these intricate cakes, right? 
And you know when you get to the one hour mark, they're running around crazy. Maybe there's some cakes in the oven, but it's just a mess. Nothing's going on. You get to the two hour mark and maybe there's these little things on on the counter and you're like, how are they going to put that together? Oh my gosh, how are they going to do it? Three hours in, nothing has gotten put together. The cakes are just out of the oven. They're cooling. You're like, oh my gosh, how are they going to get this done? There's nothing, no way they can do this. And then the four hour mark happens, right? And you're like, whoa, how did they do that? There's this beautiful, intricate, huge cake and it's everything fits together and they cut it open and it looks beautiful inside and they taste it and they love the taste. You're like, how did they do that? Even at the three-hour and 55-minute mark, sometimes it's a mess. But at the end, it works out, right? We need to realize that sometimes God is still baking the cake. Maybe he hasn't put all the components together yet. We need to realize that there's a bigger picture. Because it's hard to see it when we're in the middle of it. It's hard to see, how is this all going to fit together? I don't know. But the closer we get to the end, and when we get to the end and past it, then we look back and we say, ah, Now I get it. So I want us to say that. We can look at the bigger picture. We need to look at the bigger picture and realize that if you can't see it, it's still there. It's still there. There is a bigger picture. And that's what Joseph says in this situation. But then there's a third and final thing that Joseph says. He says, or he shows us, that we need to love in the face of hurt. Verse 21, Joseph concludes his message to his brothers by saying, So then... Don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. He wasn't denying the existence of evil. Yeah, you guys hurt me a lot. That's how he started it out, right? You hurt me a lot, but I'm still going to provide for you and your family. I'm going to do good things for you. I've forgiven you and I will continue to look after you and your kids. And he spoke kindly to them. He reassured them. He's loving them in the face in spite of all the hurt they have caused to him. And this is so important for us to see that we need to love in the face of hurt. Romans 12:21 says, "Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good." We can do that. We can change the situation by how we respond. Do we want to just bring more evil, more harm, more hurt out of it, or do we want to change things? And do we want to say, I'm going to overcome evil with good. I'm going to show love even though I'm hurt. Maybe even because of your hurt, you can help people that are hurting in the same way. Maybe then when you speak to that person words of kindness, it will go so much farther than anything anybody else says because they were the ones who hurt you. We can have such a powerful impact for good in our world. We've got to love in the face of hurt. So we see these three things as an example from the life of Joseph, of what he did, to let God be God, look at the bigger picture, and love in the face of hurt. And really, if I was to summarize all three of these things, like I always do, this is what I would say. And here's our big idea. To overcome, and I think this goes for the whole series, to overcome, we need to trust that God intended it for good. Whatever happens, whatever it is for you, whatever that thing is, that you're suffering and struggling, that trial, that awfulness that happened in your life, the hurt from your past, whatever it is, to overcome, trust that God intended it for good. We need to have this viewpoint. We need to understand evil this way, that God intended it for good. And he will make it good. He has the bigger picture. He can do it. Johnny Erickson Tata, who is herself a quadriplegic because of an accident when she was a teenager, said this. 
Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Do you believe that? Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Now, I want to say this. There is a popular idea, and and even some Christians believe this idea, that God is just a master chess player. Maybe you've heard this idea before. Like the Russian genius or, you know, Bobby Fischer. And this idea is that when evil, when Satan, when, when we in our free will make a move in the world, God is so brilliant that he knows the next move, how to counter. He always knows the next step. And that sounds good, right? But that's not, I believe, what the Bible teaches. Let's look at Genesis fifty twenty one more time. So you, I chose a different translation so you could see that this is the word evil in Hebrew. It says, you were planning evil, Joseph says, against me, but God intended it for good. You were planning evil against me, but God intended it for good. See the parallel in this verse? It's not saying you were planning evil and somehow God figured it out. He made good out of it. No, it says that God intended it, that evil, that awful thing that happened. He knew it was going to happen and he deliberately allowed it. If he's the master chess player, he knows exactly what move evil and our free will is going to make. And he allows it for our good. He intends even that. I know that this is a hard word, but this is the most important word you're going to hear in this entire series. That God knows what he's doing and he intends even the awful, terrible pain we experience for good. And if you're thinking, well, Matt, how how does he do it? It just seems like, how can he allow all that stuff? It just seems unfair. It seems awful. But here's the thing. I I got this illustration from a, a Dutch theologian. And he said that it's a lot like sharp knives. Now, those of you who have kids know you don't give your kids sharp knives, right? I'm not going to give my daughter McKinley, who's less than two years old, I'm not going to give her a sharp knife. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to use a sharp knife. No, I use it because as a parent, as an adult, I know how to do it, so I'm not going to cut myself most of the time. (laughs) I was looking, I have a cut from a few weeks ago on my finger. But, you know, we we can do it because we know how to handle it. But my daughter, oh my gosh, what, what could happen with a sharp knife, right? In the same way, God is the loving father, the parent who knows how to handle these situations. He knows how to work all things out. He knows the present. He knows the past. He knows the future. He sees them all at once. He can work everything out. He knows our thoughts. He knows our heart. He knows what's going on, what's going to happen next. He knows all of it. That's why he says, I I can intend it for good. I'm working in it, even evil. I'm allowing what I hate in order to accomplish what I love. And that's what God did in the life of Joseph to save his family and what God wants to do in our lives as well. So I'm going to have the band come up right now because I do think that this is so important for us to understand, for us to believe. We need to trust God. You know, it's really interesting. There was this woman and her name, um, McFarquhar. I hope I pronounced that right. Somebody's going to protect me. Larissa Mifarquhar. She is a staff writer for The New Yorker, but she was studying and wrote a book on why people sacrifice their lives to help people that they don't know. So she studied all these different people, got to meet them all, and afterwards she was interviewed about it, meeting all these people, spending time with them, and she was asking, and, or she was asked, like, what, what's the difference? And she said, there's a huge difference between people of faith and people that don't have faith. Huge difference. And this woman, Larissa, isn't a believer. She has no religious upbringing. She is not religious herself. But she said this, For people of faith, God is in control. And God's love will see the world through. Whereas for secular people, it's all up to us. 
We're alone here. That's why I think that for secular people, there can be an additional layer of urgency and despair. All those other views of evil will lead to despair. But when we know that, yes, there is evil, but yet God works in it for the good of those who love him, we can trust him in that. And we can trust that God intended it for good. I want you to think one more time about the life of Joseph. There was a lot of evil in his life, right? His brothers intended it for evil. His father was awful when he picked him as a favorite. When his brothers sold him into slavery, it looked like evil, but God intended it for good, to bring him to Egypt where he needed to be. And when he was in uh, slavery, doing what he was supposed to do, and he maintained his character, and he was accused falsely of a crime and thrown into prison, God intended it for good, to get him into the royal prison where he would meet some of the royal advisors to Pharaoh. And when his friend, the the cupbearer, forgot about him for two more years, and Joseph had to continue to wait and wait and wait, God was working to develop his character. He intended it for good, so that he would be a person of humility, so that when he stood before Pharaoh, Pharaoh noticed he was different, and raised him up to be second in command of all of Egypt. God intended it for good. All of the things that happened in Joseph's life, God intended it for good. Do you believe that? I want you to say that with me. God intended it for good. Let's say it one more time. God intended it for good. Because it's the same thing in your life. When you're struggling, when you're in depression and anxiety, God intended it for good. When you're suffering and struggling and grief, you don't know how to get out. God intended it for good. When, when you've just gotten out of that relationship, you're like, how is anything going to be better than this? I, I, I feel so awful. God intended it for good. Whatever our past has, whatever we're struggling through in our present, or whatever may come in the future, God intended it for good. And how could it not be so if we look at the bigger picture of the Bible? Because we know that one of Joseph's brother Judah, would have a, a royal line, right? And his descendant would not just be King David and King Solomon, but King Jesus. And we look at the life of Jesus. Think about all the evil that happened to him. When the religious leaders plotted to arrest him, they intended it for evil. When Judas betrayed him with a kiss, he intended it for evil. When the high priest interrogated him and people falsely accused him of crimes, they intended it for evil. When Pilate gave the people an option and said, I'll release him, and they cried, crucify, crucify, they intended it for evil. And when the soldiers beat him within an inch of his life, made him carry his cross to the skull, they intended it for evil. And when they nailed him to the cross, and he breathed his last, they intended it for evil. And when they laid him down into that tomb, that pit where he was dead, they intended it for evil. But God intended it for good. Because on the third day, he rose. And as all the people celebrated, the religious leaders cheered. As Pontius Pilate and the Roman soldiers jeered. As the demons cackled and Satan himself grinned. Jesus rose from the dead and said, What you intended for evil, I intended for good. God intended for good. For the saving of many lives. That anyone who would believe in Jesus could have forgiveness and eternal life and overcome whatever they face. The disciple John was right when he said, The light has shined in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you believe in Jesus 
Christ, God works in all things for the good of those who love Him. And we must trust that God. That is a God worth trusting. Would you please stand on your feet? Lord God, there is evil, there is suffering, there is hardship. We know it's real. We face it. We deal with it, Lord, but help us to respond in trust, knowing that you are working in all things for our good. That you can make a way. That you can use it for the good of us and for all those who love you. And Lord God, we thank you so much for sending your son to prove that point on the cross. We thank you and we praise you because you are the Lion of Judah. And it's your name we praise to do and declare that you are good when nothing else is. Amen.